welcome to Campfire Conversations, part of the 2021 Hebridean Dark Skies Festival. My name is Andrew Eaton-Lewis, and in this series I'm talking to fascinating people from the worlds of astronomy, psychology and the arts about our festival themes, winter, darkness and the night sky. Campfire Conversations was created by Anne Lanter in association with the Scotsman, and this year's festival is supported by Caledonian McBrain, an Outer Hebrides leader. Corrine Paulwood is one of Scotland's best-loved singer-songwriters. In recent years, she's moved into making theatre, and she's currently working on The Only Light Was Stars, a follow-up to her award-winning show, Wind Resistance. The Only Light Was Stars brings together lots of different ideas, themes and stories, from nuclear weaponry to Corrine's childhood in the Fourth Valley. But its central metaphor is supernovas, dying stars that were once mistaken for new stars. Kareen performed the show for the first time at the 2020 Hebridean Dark Skies Festival, and I wanted to catch up with her one year on to find out how it's all going, and also what got her interested in astronomy in the first place. I began, though, by asking what the lockdown has been like for her. Oh, that's quite a big question. Uh, I think it's been lots of things. I think it started in a state of panic, and actually... Coming to the Dark Skies Festival last year in February was the last time that I was out and about, I think, in public doing a performance. But I was due to do a big theatre run literally the week that lockdown started in March. Um, So I was in a state of panic about that and about just what the whole um, pandemic meant. And I guess I was like all musicians and performers and anyone working in theatre or public kind of, you know, things that require people to gather in space. I had an existential fear that I was about to have no work whatsoever, which is which is in fact the reality for loads of musicians and theatre makers. Mm. Um, but I've been lucky to have uh, a bunch of really small commissions that have kept me going both financially and morally and spiritually and emotionally. <laughs> Uh, and I'm really, really grateful for all of them. So I've managed to survive um, in the peak of lockdown. I mean, I'm very lucky to live in a place where there's we have access. We've got a garden and access to great places to walk. Um, my kids have dealt with it really well. So compared to some of the experiences that people are having, I, I feel I've been very fortunate. Um, but I've also, I guess, some of what's happening, I, I can meet it. Mm. In that I can be quite self-contained and independent about how I go about making things, and I have great support round about me here. So relatively lucky. Although at this point, coming up to New Year, um, feeling the darkness coming coming down again. So there's a new wave of of uncertainty and anxiety around around society in general, to be yeah. honest, and what the implications are for everyone else. But, but other than the things you've mentioned already, are there positive things that you feel that you, you've experienced as a result? I mean, a lot of people have talked about looking at the world in a slightly different way, looking at work in a slightly different way. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I, and I've had quite a lot of conversations with pals and family about, like, to get a sense of, you know, what, what how you meet it, like, how, 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 you, how, you, how you respond to it. And I guess for me, yeah... I mean, being outside tons, 
constitutionally really suits me. Um, and the more I can be outside, to be honest, the better. I thrive there. So it's the only way to meet people now. Uh, and I kind of love that. So it really suits me. And it makes me realise that I'm not a natural. For all my work is about people gathering in public spaces, I'm not a big pub party <laughs> Um, you know, social space animal in, in reality. So a, a walk around the park, hallelujah. You know, a tramp up a hill and actually I'm I'm in my natural element. It's made me really aware. I mean, the things that in, in a community sense, it's made me very aware of uh, the people around me and the place that I live in, how people get their food, how we how we work, um, the networks of people around me that are that are um, geared up to look after and look out for other people. So I've become hyper aware of those things and actually deeply like taken my hat off to a very small, dedicated bunch of people in my village that have just absolutely rocked this whole period. Not on their own account, but actually on account of everybody else. They've just been amazing mm. about, about, about what, what they've created that's actually got some value for my my village community so there's not there are some positives i think and there are some checks on your own sense of entitlement i think mm. so it's made it's made me think a lot about travel and how every day that you know that's like musicians that depend upon travel it's just you take it for granted you wouldn't think twice about hopping on a train to london or you know um jetting all over the highlands or whatever in a car and that's just normal behavior and uh, and when you can't do it, it and it, it really makes me... I've been very aware of my carbon footprint, let's put it that way. Yeah, yeah. It's just in terms of the miles and the number of times I've had to fill up my car. Uh, and I think that's a thing that I'll be left with permanently. I've got no desire, actually, to go back to hmm. how things were. So there's a lot of big questions, which I'm not sure that they're positive, but I think they're necessary. And I think that I think I've probably put off asking those questions for longer yeah. than I should. Um, let's talk about The Only Light with Stars, then. I mean... Uh, I'm not sure how well known a fact it is about you that you have this quite long-standing interest in astronomy. And, and in the show, you, you talk about this as kind of starting with a, an exchange trip to Canada. Um, when yeah. You... yeah, so when I was, when I was um, 18, I, I studied my second year university. It was an exchange between Dundee University and the University of Trent, which is in Peterborough, just north of Toronto in Ontario. And, um, you know, the Canadian university system's different, so you were able to pick up five subjects instead of three. And it seemed like an opportunity to do something I could never do at a Scottish university, doing an arts-based, arts-humanities-based degree. And they had an observatory on the university campus. And uh, so I did Astronomy 101 <laughs> as part of my second year. And to my absolute hilarity, on my degree certificate, it says... Philosophy with politics and physics, astronomy, <laughs> <laughs> which which is uh, overstates the extent of my knowledge of um, of physics, but I genuinely loved it, and actually I loved it for two different reasons. I mean, I loved it because of the actual, uh, you know, we could go to the observatory and see things. It was the first time I'd ever seen the moons of Jupiter. I was amazed. So I was amazed at the actual um, experience of of being able to observe space. Um, mm. But I actually also loved the maths of it because tons of astronomy and physics is maths and I was a maths geek. Um, so it, it appealed to that bit of me as well. So, I, you know, all these kind of sidereal time calculations and stuff really like ticked a lot of boxes for me. It was quite joyous um, and kind of tidy. Um, so, yeah, that was a, that, that was kind of a starting 
point. And I think in, in reality, eh, if the Scottish education system allowed, allowed for it, I would have been a natural arts and science like crossover eh, kind of candidate, but you weren't really able to make those choices. You had to channel down one route or another. And I think what I've realised at this point in my life, I've just turned 50, mm. um, is that I'm fascinated by science and the questions that it raises um, and, it, and it speaks to my philosophical head and my creative head. So I get to indulge that now in a way that I wasn't, um, you know, fully able to kind of do as a as a student earlier on. And now you've mixed these two things in a really interesting way with this show, which in the form that I've seen it, at least, which is a very early form um, last year, is a kind of mixture of TED talk on astronomy, a kind of one-on-one astronomy um, <laughs> kind of talk, and lots of personal reflection and personal stories. So I wanted to kind of dig into to both of those things. Yeah. Um, I mean, uh, the a kind of key figure at the start of this show is is Tycho Brahe, and yeah. and um, and his work on supernovas. I mean, tell me why that piqued your interest. Well, I guess super. I mean, uh, there's a recurring uh, interest in supernova in general um, and I guess the, the idea of a supernova and and the, the idea of uh, that being um, a star, the end of a star's life an explosive death of a star kind of, it comes from that time, from Tycho Brahe's time because he he sort of pre-Galileo so this is still pre-optical kind of um, optical telescope kind of era he had his own private um, observatory <laughs> In um, in what was part of the, um, I think it's now Sweden, but was part of the Kingdom of Denmark at, at oh. the time, um, and kept these meticulous daily records. So he was kind of the star astronomer of his of his time, um, and wrote a paper about um, a, a, a new star. It was it was about the arrival of a new star, um, or what was seen to be a new star. But because he was such a meticulous observer of the sky, it, it became clear to him that it wasn't an, it wasn't a new star. Um, it was. Well, it was a start. It was something new that happened, um, but it arrived and then disappeared again. And it kind of, I guess, what was what's of interest to me is that it it, um, it casts in doubt the whole metaphysical thinking of the era. So it's it's metaphysically, theologically, politically revolutionary, um, and and so much of of the kind of you know the early era of scientific thinking is it questions all the assumptions right. about the constancy and you know immutability of of the the heavens um so it's a radical his his observations are are deeply radical in terms of european thinking and global thinking and these observations incidentally i mean he gets a lot of the credit but they're actually happening globally and that's one of the bigger stories right. is that actually there are astronomers all over the world in other you know in, the, in chinese culture making the same observations um but it's it has this yeah deeply revolutionary impact and it ushers in an, an you know an an era, you know, Galileo is yet to come, uh, and Kepler is yet to come, and uh, you know these are the great big thinkers um, that kind of revolutionised the, the the history of astronomy. But supernova themselves are fascinating to me um, because they are, or they, we've come to realise scientifically that they are, yeah, they are they are nuclear explosions out in space, mm. and I've long been fascinated by nuclear physics from another end which is one of the threads that comes through the show in a, in a messy kind of fashion. Um, um, you know, that 
supernova are, are nuclear explosions, but actually the, all stars are, are born from nuclear processes. And now as humans at this point in the 20th and 21st century, we have a degree of command over those nuclear processes that makes us uniquely powerful and dangerous on our own planet. So there's something about about humanity and our grappling with these elemental forces that are the forces of the universe and of the stars, but they're also profoundly kind of terrestrial forces as well and have impact now and impact into the future in terms of, you know, um, many, many thousands of future generations. Um, and that's one of the big questions f for me is how science is both this um, is, is both a wonderment and amazement and there's a kind of sort of what's the way of putting it there's a kind of awe you know involved in science and especially in mm. astronomy um but there's also there are also um political economic forces driving how we utilize our scientific knowledge and that worries me which perhaps brings us to the um, other kind of key figure who's, who's mentioned in the show kind of towards the end, um, Martin yeah. Lyell, um, former Astronomer Royal, um, who, uh, yeah, tell me about your interest in him and how he kind of fits in with this, this narrative. Well, theme he's here. kind of fascinating because he's, he's one of the, the first two um, radio astronomers to be, to be given, to be granted the Nobel Prize for his work on radio astronomy and um, he he subsequently becomes the astronomer royal as well so he's the most influential figure in astronomy in the UK and one of the most important in the world um, so he's a pioneer like in a deeply respected eminent science that moves forward that whole sphere of radio astronomy you know massively um, and yet he spent the last 10 years of his life basically disowning science. He, he became a campaigner against nuclear power and nuclear weapons. The very last thing he ever wrote before his death in the early 80s was almost, came, it's basically a, a, a short treatise on um, basically stop science, just stop scientific endeavour now. Mm. <laughs> um, and it's incredible to me that a scientist as eminent as that um, and as knowledgeable could get to that point in his life and think, he he literally got to the point where he thought all of my research and my thinking has is potentially put to ill use by humanity. Um, far better to turn our uh, minds to the questions of you know justice and equality and poverty and 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 all of those things. And um, so he's fascinating. He's just a fascinating character because there it's just the biggest to me. It's that's the biggest question of, of this time. Um, yeah. It's, it's exactly it's exactly that, and 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 I'm thinking, you know, about the climate um, emergency that we're in, and the relevance of you know science and technology as a backdrop to all of that, because it's our technological um, endeavours have got us to this point, um, but there's also this hopefulness that somehow our scientific thinking will get us out of the mire, and I'm sceptical <laughs> about that. You know, I'm genuinely vexed. Yeah. About that, a bit of me worries that just worries about the it's like the forces of good and evil, you know. <laughs> so it, it's it's troubling. Yeah. Troubling to me, and I think also the 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 idea of 
space potentially, which is one of the big things right now and has been for the past 20 or 30 years, um, space becomes a, a, a zone of military endeavour and economic power and entrepreneurial um, mavericks. And there's an element of it feeling very, very undemocratic and very, um, you know, it becomes the domain of all the same people who get us into the mess that we are in mm-hmm. here on Earth. So so I guess small matters that I'm dealing with in one hour and a half show. <laughs> and I think that I think the reality is perhaps slightly too big. I think I am trying to do slightly too many too many things right now. So 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 mm. the the version that I took to Stornoway of, of the Only Light with Stars um was trying to do a lot <laughs> You know, I was trying to, yeah. was trying to explain the concept of radioactivity and the birth of stars, and um, and then you know the modern day uh, ethics and uh, semiotics of nuclear waste disposal, and there's a lot of stuff going on, you know, in it. So I haven't quite whittled it down to the kernel of it. It's maybe more than one show. But, but a big part of make, well, what makes it work, of course, is that you bring a lot of your personal experience and your personal stories um, into it, alongside this kind of big metaphor, whatever the metaphor turns out to be. Yeah. As, as with wind resistance, there's lots of um, lovely kind of personal anecdotes. So maybe we can talk about some of those. I mean, you, you sure. talk about um, growing up in the, in the Fourth Valley um, and, and various things that kind of connect to that. I mean, being close to... Um, Bonnie Bridge, which is this kind of UFO hotspot, and also growing up in kind of in the shadow of Grangemouth. Yeah. Um, so yeah. so it, it seems like a lot of these influences were quite formative. Um, I think that's true. I mean, my my I grew up up on top of a hill. It's, it's a wee place called Brayface. It's above a village mm. called Banknock. And from the front of my parents' house, where they still live, you can see the whole of, of the Fourth Valley. So you, you get a real sense of sky. Although this is like the most densely populated part of Scotland, we were kind of above it. And um, so I always felt like there was a sense of expansiveness out where I where I lived. And the dominant feature of the landscape was the petrochemical plant uh, on the banks of the Forth at Grangemouth. It was owned by the BP at that point. And I thought it was really beautiful. I mean, at night, as, as a little girl, it's magical because it's it's really bright. And, um, and, and so I, my, my memory of it is of flashing lights and flames. It looked quite, you know, magnificent, really. Mm. Um and now, obviously, it's deeply, deeply complex <laughs> because it's the it's it's the only petrochemical plant in Scotland. It's the main source of carbon pollution in the country. It's privately owned. The whole country is basically at the mercy of the owners of this one petrochemical plant. Mm. So it's complicated. Um, and then in that landscape, it was it was the main employer in my area. So there's a lot in it about you know the ethical choices we make about scientific inquiry and technological development are, come down to as well just the basic day-to-day needs of people. Mm. Um, and so my area was dependent on this very complicated place. Um, and yet into that, th- this local village, the neighbouring village of Bonnybridge, was for some years the global hotspot for UFO visitations. And it was the only thing that made our area interesting, mm. was that there were thousands, literally thousands of um, UFO sightings between Banknock, Bonnybridge, Larbert, Pullman, this little backwater, nothing ever happens, part of the central belt became interesting. Um, And that connects, in my mind, I had a really um, transformative tour. Um, 20 years ago, I was touring America with a band called the Battlefield Band. 
And uh, so I, I, I toured America for 18 months. And it was kind of mind-blowing just because just the expansiveness of the country. But the most... Um, the place that most made an impact, visceral impact on me, was New Mexico. And we did a, a 10-day tour of New Mexico. And I just found the place topographically, physically astonishing. I thought it was absolutely beautiful. Um, but, of course, there's all the the stuff connecting UFO visitations in Roswell, New Mexico, you know, and all the lore around that. So somehow, psychically, my little wee kind of central Scotland backwater was connected to New Mexico. Mm. And the the other thing about New Mexico, well, two things. I visited the... Um, the the White Sands in Alamogordo, which is just a spit away from where the Trinity test took place. So New Mexico as a state is the hub of all the early nuclear developments. You have Los Alamos mm. and then the White Sands missile range where the, the first nuclear test took place. But added to this, the, it was an amazing trip in a six-seater Cessna plane over the Very Large Array Telescope um, and it was basically a guy who'd come to one of the gigs. Hey, guys, do you want to come out in my plane tomorrow? And it's like, yeah, <laughs> sure. And he flew us over this telescopic array, which is the one that's in contact, you know, the Jodie Foster yeah, film. Yeah. It's iconic. It's like, oh, my God, I know this place. Um, and it was magnificent. It was genuinely magnificent. So in my head, these things are all connected. You have this... Global Centre for Radio Astronomy, because um, the, the VLA is a radio um, telescope, and uh, you have the Centre of Early Nuclear Research, and you have this connection to UFOs. So they're all somehow connected to the stars. So in my head, that's enough. Like, so the, the, the connections are... They're, they're, very, they're filtered through a very particular personal um, experience <laughs> and set of interests. But it opens, it opens up a bunch of really interesting questions, I think. I mean, it sounds as if, in a way, that trip kind of mirrored your childhood experiences, didn't it? I mean, from what you're saying about your childhood, the, the, the sky was kind of magical, but in a very strange way. And it was magical because of UFOs, and it was magical because of you know, <laughs> the lights from a, from a power station. Yeah, that's true. And actually, this was an opposite experience because it was the experience of being in a plane, mm. looking down onto this array, that you know that that basically uh, captures this you know where you can see the stars you know you can uh, which is amazing to me and to see this whole landscape this whole complicated contested landscape of New Mexico it's also in um, the site of one of the um, the largest nuclear waste de deposit units the, the largest one in the states is 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 in the New Mexico desert as well so all these things are. They're literally there in the landscape, and I, I don't. You don't have to make them up. The story is kind of there to be made. The connections are there to be made in the actual landscape. So it's an it's an inquiry, and it's still an inquiry for me right now. Where I just have a hunch wow. that these things are relevant, and a, and a lot of that is how it works when I'm making something. Is I just it sounds mad. I like try to I try to condense all the themes, and it's like what on earth? Too many things, and a little bit scattergun, and a little bit sideways. But I just have a visceral hunch that um, there's a way to open up an inquiry through these two particular places. The one is my, is central Scotland where I grew up, and the other is the New Mexico desert and the things that connect them 
literally, like objectively, and the things that connect them through me, like mediated through me and my experience. So is this quite a big part of your creative process generally, do you think, that just you're finding connections between things that aren't obviously connected? Uh, definitely. I think that is basically, that's basically what I do. That's my thing. Um, it's just, and I'm hardwired to do it. It's not, I just, I think I've always been like that, um, is to see, is to, res, you know, one thing here and over there. Oh, wait a minute, that's a little bit like that. And it can be a little bit like that in any way. <laughs> you yeah. know, it, it, like, it sounds a little bit like that. It reminds me of something. So the connection can be any kind of connection. But if it's a truthful connection and not an artifice, mm. and I think people can go on that journey with you. So I'm never, what, what's the word? I'm never, I'm never taking things and desperate to find the connection. One thing connects to another thing and that's how the map grows. Yeah. Um, so it's, it grows like an or like a kind of organism. Um, and, and it, and basically the, the connections are mostly narrative connections or philosophical questions. Um, and the, and then I think people can, I think however strange the connections are and however disparate the, the themes seem, hmm. um, I think I think if people trust um, that they're genuine, then, then they, they'll go on that journey with you. Yeah. Sometimes the connections just seem quite funny and random, though. I mean, the, the, there's, <laughs> there's uh, um, elks, I remember, it seemed to come up quite a lot <laughs> in various different places that you've been interested in. Yeah, totally. So elk, so the, the, one, of the, one of the big motifs in it all is a very particular constellation, which is the constellation of Cassiopeia, mm. which is the big W. Um, it's one of the most recognisable constellations in the sky and it spins around the pole star. Um, so, yeah, it's one of the easiest ones to point out in the sky. So basically I thought, well, there's Cassiopeia. Why is Cassiopeia relevant to this? Um, because Cassiopeia is uh, is very important in research. It's where Tycho Brahe saw his Stella Nova, his new star, was in the constellation of Cassiopeia. So basically, uh, um, the most recent supernova explosions have been witnessed in the constellation of of Cassiopeia. And the brightest um, radio source in the sky, out with our own solar system, um, emanates from Cassiopeia. So it's it's important astronomically. Um, it's important, there, there's a whole myth around Cassiopeia, which is fascinating, which is around... Um, hubris and human pride and vanity and love so it's, there's, there's all kinds of epic big themes but obviously all the constellations in the sky have have myths and narratives attached to them that are very culturally specific and the people the, 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 um, the Sami people of the Arctic Circle um, it's the elk constellation and the same is true for the First Nations people of Washington State um, it's, it's the elk and, and that makes perfect sense as well when someone points that out to you you go I totally if I lived in a realm of elks then Cassiopeia would be an elk yeah. so by total randomness Tycho Brahe had a pet elk and he got this this pet elk he, he liked to feed beer to his pet elk and there's a whole totally bonkers story about Tycho Brahe and his elk getting so drunk that it fell down the stairs and died you're like, what is this guy? Tycho Brahe is bonkers. Um, and he's such a character. So there's an elk there. So in a way, once it's almost like once you start to notice something, 
it's amazing. It's like if you go for a walk, you know, when you, if you set out on a walk and you think, today I'm going to notice things that are shaped like triangles. There are triangles everywhere. Like, you just, that's just... If you, so I think if you set up a journey with a bunch of motifs, it's amazing what unfolds itself. So yeah, there were, there were comic kind of slightly dark comic like gifts in in some of the stories and Tico Brahe for example I mean what a, what a character he he um he lost his nose in a fight so he was and he lost he lost his nose in a fight about a maths equation so he got drunk and got and got into like a duel with somebody about maths and had his nose weaked off, so he had a, a a prosthetic nose. But something in it just makes me think, wow, this guy's a this guy's a fanatic. Like he's really he's committed to his his maths <laughs> to the extent that he's mutilated his face um, to prove a point. So anyway, I think there just there there are these incredible characters. And if you're as interested in the people as you are in the science, which is not necessarily the job of a scientist. So I think that's the thing about coming, marching into some area of research from the outside gives you license to be interested in things that are not relevant to scientific papers or research, but actually do illuminate the field in a very particular way. <laughs> and, I mean, and I mean that sincerely. <laughs> like, And also just allow a hook in so that the whole thing isn't isn't one great big diatribe and lecture it's like it's bizarre and surreal and funny because it kind of is when the grid went down again again tonight the only light was stars through the Velux window, Cassiopeia, I can see you shine. So you were talking about Cassiopeia um, just then. Um, so I should probably mention that the only light with stars gets its title from the lyrics of your song, Cassiopeia, um, which talks about looking at the stars, but is actually about the fear of a, a nuclear holocaust, right? Yeah, it is. So there's, I have a, I have a piece called Cassiopeia, which is the last track on an album I made called Laws of Motion. Mm. And um, what is it? It's two things. It takes place in central Scotland. So it takes place basically in my house growing up on this hill above the Fourth Valley. Um, I grew up in Cold War era. So with this absolutely ever-present notion that at any point um, the siren would sound and, yeah, Grangemouth and, and, the, and the Fourth Valley would be obliterated. And that was just, I think, for people of my generation living there, that wasn't a... That felt like a, an actual imminent possibility. Like, that, I, I lived thinking that that could happen at any point. Um, and I used to think, as a wee girl, so the same wee girl that's watching the stars and, and thinks that Grangemouth is beautiful, is working out how to survive the nuclear holocaust. And my tactic was that we would clearly um, all just go to the jam cupboard and we would live in the jam cupboards because my mum was a great maker of jam. And um, there was enough jam there. and All we would need is some biscuits, some stuff for the dog, some newspapers 
uh, you know, to tack on the windows, and we would just rock the whole nuclear holocaust, no bother. Um, so it's a kind of, it's a wee playoff between being a child, imagining how to look after your family in the jam cupboard, and then the text of the Protect and Survive Nuclear, um, you know, basically the, the, civic, the Civil Service Guide to How to Survive the Nuclear Holocaust. Yeah. And this image that at the moment, when, when the bomb falls and the grid goes down, the one thing that you can see through your window is the constellation of Cassiopeia. So suddenly you can see the stars, all the other lights, the bright lights of Grangemouth, the bright lights of central Scotland go down and the sky is everything. Um, and that's where the image com- comes from, I guess. So there's a darkness in it and there's a humour in it. Um, uh, it yeah, that, and, and, and the notion, the, the whole notion as, as a child that, that I, could, I could sort it all out with some rhubarb and ginger jam. <laughs> Um, it's, it's, it's ridiculous, you know. Um, but uh, I guess it's all about... There, there's, and there's a sort of happenstance. I wrote, I wrote the piece Cassiopeia with the, the image of Cassiopeia before I came up with the notion to make The Only Light With Stars. Oh. Um, it, it was one of the touch points for it. And there are others that have evolved over time. I have a, a song from around 12 or 13 years ago called Terminal Star, which is basically about a supernova. Um, uh, yeah, and, and so when I fished around in my back catalogue, I realised I had a few songs <laughs> that were connected to my themes. I have another another song about nuclear power and weaponry. Um, and again, it's once you, it's easy to make the dots kind of join up mm. between all of those things. So I had some re- some resources to... To draw on as as a map, and it's it's, it's it is just sort of an exercise in hunch and mapping and connection. Yeah. So, looking at the stars was also quite a big part of your childhood, then. Yeah, because we I mean, we grew up. Although the you know the the industrial belt of Scotland stretched out in front of the house, but to the back of the house, it was all farmland and fields. So. Obviously, you, you, you've got the glare of of, of industry oh. in the sky, but we lived in a very quiet place, and and it, it was very easy to go and be outside and see the stars. So I was very conscious of the stars, and being you know not being not not super spotty or knowledgeable, but certainly knew from a very young age what some of the major constellations were called. Um, so would have been able to identify Cassiopeia and you know. Orion's Bell and the and the Pleiades and so and and interested in the stories that attach to those things as as well um, and yeah and I, I guess I try to pass that on to my my kids now as well um, I, I like that they, they can identify you know the biggies mm. um, <laughs> in the sky and and I sort of wish I lived in a place that was I live in a small village but there's you know, the whole area is light polluted. Um, uh, I envy you guys to some extent. Like, it w- I would love to live in a place where that wasn't the case. And I also wonder what it would be like if more of us did experience darkness oh. and, and were less, and light was less omnipresent, you know, in our terrestrial realm. Something is lost. I would say by not having that sense of uh, otherness and bigness and expanse that the sky gives us, there's a kind of spiritual quality 
to literally recognizing that something is surpasses you yeah. vastly um that if you live in an environment where that experience that visceral experience is never with you um i think that's politically you know emotionally d d gets us to the part of the mess that we're in mm. now yeah um, talking of the stories behind stars, um, yet another thread to this show is is Greek mythology. There's a whole whole section um, uh, about that. Um, uh, tell me a bit about that and how that fits into the picture. So I guess I was interested in the character of Cassiopeia and who is she and how is she represented in Greek mythology. And she doesn't come off well in, in, in the story um, as it's most commonly told. She's very vain. She's Cassiopeia is the mother of Andromeda, and she's never done boasting about the the beauty of Andromeda. And she hacks off the the Nereids, who are the kind of water nymphs, and the, they they hang out with Poseidon. And the, basically, there's a whole um, battle between the kind of realm of the human realm of humans and the realm of gods, and it's all around beauty and vanity and hubris and boasting. And Cassiopeia essentially is punished um, for constantly bragging about the beauty of her daughter um, by the... Basically, Andromeda is chained to a rock. Um, she's about to be eaten by a, wa a water monster. It's a, it's a horrendous story of, um, you know, capture and near rape and murder and all the rest of it. <laughs> um, and, in, and in the myth, um, she is... She is saved by Perseus who comes to to save her from the rock um, and these are all connected in the sky basically Cassiopeia's fate at the end of this mythic telling is that she's chucked into the sky by Zeus and she's forced to spin around the pole star and that's her as a queen she's, she was a queen of um, Abyssinia um, and her her penance is to constantly be upside down and disrespected in the sky as she spins around Polaris. So I have a, a a different telling of it, which is supposing supposing Cassiopeia wasn't wasn't that bad. Supposing the vanity was the vanity of the gods rather than the vanity of humans, or it was a little bit more complex. So I have a retelling of it where Cassiopeia's only crime is that she loves her daughter and is constantly telling people how much she loves her daughter. Um, so it's a slightly different take on, on the whole thing. And I guess I'm interested in all of that. I have another song completely unconnected with this called Tears for Lot's Wife, mm. which is a retelling of the, the, the story of Sodom and Gomorrah and Lot uh, leaving that, which is a sympathetic view of um, Lot's wife uh, based on a poem by um, Anna Akhmatova, the Russian poet. So I'm interested in the idea of how stories of women in myths of every culture are often uh, deeply uh, inhospitable, like they're essentially misogynistic. Mm. Um, and there's a, a thread of uh, abuse and um, uh, blaming, scapegoating of women for the ills of humanity. Um, so I wanted to kind of present a more sympathetic take on Cassiopeia. And it's about love. I guess it's about, is it, is it possible to love something too much? That would be the question at the heart of it. I, I remember it being this really interesting and, and compelling interlude in the midst of, of um, all these other stories. Um, 
how do you see the connection between that and 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 the rest of uh, so another really weird little connection so poseidon the sea god is the bearer of the trident so um and and the whole um story of cassiopeia and andromeda is premised on poseidon slamming down his trident and conjuring up this great storm in the sea and this great monster cetus the sea monster and i'm like my goodness we call our nuclear weapon system in the uk trident um and the only other one that predated it is polaris so polaris was the system before trident and that is fascinating to me so so again it's just like once you start looking for those connections you don't have to make them up just by being in the realm of greek myth which mm. connects to the realm of um, constellations and astronomy you are already in the realm of nuclear weapons because we've chosen them as the symbols of our power. Um, so so that it's all there. It's, you don't have to make this stuff up if, you, if you're open to seeing those kind of connections. So where do you see this, um, this project going at this stage? I mean, is it more developed now than it was last year? I mean, it sounds like you're even finding new connections even, even now as, as we talk. I think it's about to come into its own now. I think the reality is since March of this year, um, there was a period of just genuine alarm and uh, needing to get through this period with whatever work I could muster. Yeah. And I couldn't really see a way to take on a big project. It felt like a time of just doing small chunks of things and getting through a few weeks and then a few weeks more. Um, and I think at this point, I can see the necessity of immersing myself in something slightly bigger. So I think I've, I've only done little bits and pieces since um, I, I tried out the ideas in in February. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think I'm going to make it one of the projects for this year because my instinct is um, there's going to be no live work of any kind this year. I know there's great optimism about vaccines and all the rest of it. Um, my, my gut says that there will be no work um, for the next year, uh, and and also because I, I guess the the themes that I am grappling with, they feel very relevant <laughs> to the moment that we're that we're in. Yeah. So I so I don't doubt that the questions matter, <laughs> um, and one of those big questions is is it's about it's rooted in astronomy, but it's about the scientific impetus you know and what we do with that what it's for who gets to decide what the lines of inquiry are and what the applications for that knowledge are and how it is that we think about time because that's the other big thing is that I think for me what I get from from astronomy and from the stars and our understanding of it now is that every time you look at the stars you're witnessing deep time you're which you're witnessing billions of years you know yeah. the remnants of the start of the universe so it's time as much as it's more in a way time more than space yeah is what you're getting when you look upwards and obviously our great human concern now is about time moving forward and how we survive as a species on the planet and our capacity as humans to have un, unprecedented impacts 
on future generations of life, not just our own, but every form of life on the planet that we now, especially through nuclear power, I know carbon gets all the, uh, em- the emphasis right now, but already we have created waste from our um, nuclear power and weaponry that will last for hundreds of thousands of years. We don't have a way to render it safe yeah. for those periods of time. So we're already in that, and it's not just... It's not just to do with carbon and climate crisis. They're intimately connected with every other form of power. Absolutely. I mean, we were talking earlier about um, the impact of not seeing dark skies on our on our, on our psyche. And, and one of the really important things about looking up at the dark skies is incredibly humbling, and it's, particularly in terms of time and seeing objects in the sky which will be there for millions of years after we're gone. And, you know, it shows you just how temporary everything in our lives are and, and, and how precious that is. And it's, it's very grounding, I find. I totally agree. And I, and I, and I think there's something dangerous about, about losing that sense of perspective and smallness because we are both small and yet actually big in our potential impact on everything else. Yeah. <laughs> but, but small in the arc of... Of deep time, so there's a hopefulness in it to me as well. There's a, and it's a, a theme I've gone to in other pieces of work that are not specifically connected with astronomy. I'm interested in geology as well, which which is the other main way I think we can get a sense of deep time and our smallness is through is through rock. Mm. So, um, and I get I I find it yeah humbling is a good word, and what's it, weirdly. I don't think optimistic is the word, but I don't know. There's 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 something about it. Yeah. About yeah. Yeah, about the idea that 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 lots of things will persist, even if we don't. Yeah. 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 Um, before I let you go, I I just wanted to talk about one last thing, which was one of the things I really enjoyed about the um the the performance you did um last year um was this idea of showing your workings you know that it was <laughs> what you performed at the dark skies festival in february was obviously not a finished piece but there was something lovely about the idea of showing your workings which which as you explained is something you do routinely in in, in mathematics um and in science in, in fact yeah. but as, as an artist you're not expected to do that and there was something yeah. very fitting about the, the way that you brought that into the piece um yeah. Oh, I'm glad because I've never done. I mean, I've literally never done that. I've never been prepared to put a piece of work out explicitly as a work in progress, mm. which is what it very much was. But it did seem really apt to me. Um, you know, the, the, the whole of science is predicated on showing your workings. That's what the exchange of research is. Um, findings are irrelevant without workings. You have to understand how the process. Um, and yeah, and yeah, fascinating to me that in the realm of arts, there's very little space for that. Um, and I mean, I know there are artists who, for whom that's a very big part of the work, but as a mainstream endeavour, that is not. It's absolutely the antithesis of what's asked of you as an artist. People want finished product, and it's all about product. And actually, something about that is also really interesting because product is is part of our capitalist mindset is to create these finished packageable things mm. and actually what's of interest to me genuinely is the process of making i make work for the process that um, and for me 
I, I, like, I, like I say, I'm absolutely hardwired to ask questions and try to find connections. So, so to me, the joy, it's joyous to perform. I don't doubt that it's joyous. But the real, the bit that really mm. makes me feel alive is, is the process. Yeah. So it, it fulfilled two things. A, it wasn't finished. So <laughs> it couldn't be a product, even if I wanted it to be a product. Um, but it was quite delightful. And it was also a unique opportunity, I think, because the festival um, cut across arts and science. And there were, sci- you know, like working research astronomers in the room and, and artists for whom, you know, you know, the body of their work is engagement with astronomy. Mm. Um, it felt like an absolute privilege to be in that space and have you know, have people from a totally different background um, in the room to talk to. So it, it was it was both terrifying and kind of brilliant to go, I'm not quite here yet, but this is where I'm going. And to have just a few really beautiful exchanges. And, and did you get interesting feedback from those people? I did. So I, I, I did have some, I had some really lovely feedback. And I'm going to forget all their their names. <laughs> the lovely researcher from Birmingham, what was his name? Was he... A French fellow. Oh, a Murray um, Trio. Yes. So he was brilliant. And he he was lovely. He he came up and he said that he um it was the telling of stories. He he he, he said that as as a as a scientist and I guess that you talked about the TED Talk thing, but there's a culture of snazzy visuals and PowerPoints and everything needing to be wham bam, multimedia, this and that. And yeah. that's the culture that we live in. We're so visually wired. But actually I'm a musician and a storyteller, so I am essentially all about audio and narrative that's my thing um more than visuals and when you make a piece of theater obviously visuals is a massive part of it but i didn't have any of those resources at this particular work in progress all i had was narrative thread yeah and my, and my voice as a storyteller and a singer and he was lovely and he said actually the thing i've taken from this is that story can do a lot for you there, there's a lot and he, and he said he thought he would embed that more in his like way of presenting his work mm. um, was was this the, the, the strength of narrative and, and as a way of engaging people. So I was very heartened. I was very heartened by that and heartened by just, just some lovely people. There was a there was a the, the ex head of chemistry, I think, at the Nicholson Institute in Stornoway was there. <laughs> and he commended me on my explanation of radioactivity. And um, I was quite chuffed by that too. <laughs> There was lots of really interesting feedback. I mean, amazing incidental feedback. There was a, 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 a two people there who who are based in Edinburgh who work uh, with British Sign Language, oh. and they came up and said that actually at Harriet Watt University in Edinburgh um, is the leading uh, institute working out uh, new BSL signs for astronomical terms. And they were they were struck by the physicality of my performance and the way that I gesticulate to explain things. And what they said was that many of the things I did instinctively with my hands and body to explain scientific concepts were the act like a whisker away from the actual sign. Um, so they were lovely, and they said, you know, if you want to come and learn the sign terminology for these things and learn a bit more about the process of, of how the language is evolving to incorporate new science, then then we'd, we'd be happy to facilitate that. Which, what, 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 how brilliant and random is that? And quite, you know, really 
Beautiful. So yeah, I, I, there's a whole bunch of um, little connections that have come from just that one night's performance um, and people to pick up threads with. So I found it invaluable. Like It, it couldn't have been a better environment for testing out the the idea, I, I think. And I'm quite excited this year to come about about making a bit of dedicated time um, to kind of work out what this is and what its final form might be. Well, I'm really looking forward to seeing whatever final form that is. I feel very privileged to have seen it in its early stages. I mean, there, yeah, there was something very special about the, that particular version of it. Um, so it'll be really interesting to see what it becomes. Um, uh, thank you so much for sharing all these reflections with us. And um, yeah, I, I look forward to seeing the final show. Brilliant. Well, I'll definitely, definitely come to Stornoway. Try and give it its first out and then Stornoway <laughs> once it's all become something. You've been listening to Campfire Conversations, part of the 2021 Hebridean Dark Skies Festival, which takes place at Anlanta on the Isle of Lewis, as well as online throughout February. The festival is supported by Caledonian McBrain, an Outer Hebrides leader, in partnership with Callanish Visitor Centre, Lewis Castle College, UHI, Stornoway Astronomical Society, and Gallon Head Community Trust. Campfire Conversations was created by Anlanta in association with the Scotsman, and presented by me, Andrew Eaton-Lewis. The sound was mixed by Hamish Brown. If you'd like to find out more about the Hebridean Dark Skies Festival, visit Anne Lanter's website, www.lanter.com. <laughs>